legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is David Feidler who joins us to discuss modern life and ancient wisdom. The difficulties in our lives are defined by our reaction to them and there are many more problems in our minds than in reality. But the modern materialistic worldview dictates that life, the world and the entire cosmos are devoid of meaning or purpose and so we seek them in possessions, status and the pursuit of pleasure. As a result, many people live in a state of permanent anxiety, constantly comparing themselves to others while dreaming of some golden future which is forever just over the horizon. However, the best possible life isn't just about contentment. With challenge comes opportunity, whilst doggedly avoiding challenges simply leads to stasis and stagnation. The question is how we meet our challenges, and whether we use them for growth and progress, or simply cast around for someone or something to blame. In the end, freedom is a state of mind, and looking at the world through a different lens is both liberating and life-affirming everything that our moribund consumer culture is not. Hello and welcome, David, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, it's great to be with you, Greg. It's been many years, actually. It was uh, around the time of you published uh, Restoring the Soul of the World, and that was uh, quite some time ago. Right. It's been a long time since we spoke. Exactly. So, before we get started today, uh, just to, uh, say a few words to listeners who are not familiar with you. Um, tell them about your background and your work in general. Okay. So uh, ever since I was quite young, actually in my late teens, I started studying ancient religions and I studied uh, ancient philosophy academically when I was in school. That was many decades ago. And uh, in recent years, the past 15 years, I've been quite interested in Stoicism, which is a Hellenistic uh, philosophy. It's become very popular recently. And uh, I started reading Seneca, who was one of the big three Roman Stoics. So this new book, uh, it's called Breakfast with Seneca because I developed this little ritual of reading Seneca each morning when I would go out for breakfast. And it's basically... Uh, an introduction to his thought by topic and an introduction to stoicism in general. Now, as I've set out in my recorded introduction, this is not a per se a discussion about Seneca, uh, stoic philosophy, or indeed any other, you know, abstract look at philosophy. This is very much about applying certain eternal ideas, really, to everyday life, ideas that were relevant in Seneca's time, indeed prior to that, and are very relevant today. And in many ways, um, I'd like to say, you know, for many people, philosophy is 
kind of alien to them. They've maybe never encountered it, or, or if they have, as mentioned, it's been presented in a very abstract way, and it's been difficult for most people to see how this applies to their everyday life, and that is a problem in, in philosophy, as you point out in the book. But what I like to say is, really, at the end of the day, um, we're all philosophers. Mm-hmm, and yes. that doesn't mean just that if you engage in thinking about big questions, you know, life, the universe, and everything, why are we here, where do we come from, where are we going? Yeah, those are philosophical questions. But really, anybody who is engaged in, you know, some sort of self-reflection about their own life, uh, whether it's been triggered by, you know, uh, an adverse event or something really positive or not, anybody who's just thought about their position in the world or, the, you know, where they're going and why they're doing what they're doing, they're engaging in philosophy. Exactly, right. Right. And um, the thing that's really appealing to people about Stoicism is that it's a philosophy of life and it's based on very, you know, practical types of issues. For example, like how to live a life that's actually worth living so that when you're on your deathbed and dying, you're not uh, thinking, oh, I regret the life that I lived. I Instead, you would feel that you lived a very worthwhile life and feel grateful for it. Yeah, well, that's the, the, the practical value of philosophy, as mentioned. Perhaps we could say a word. I mentioned that, you know, these ideas uh, that Seneca was um, expounding, yes, he, he had his own take on them, and he really added something to that school of thought. But perhaps we could say something about that thread of ideas which extend back to before his time. Right. Well, uh, as you said, these are perennial ideas, and uh, the Stoics certainly didn't invent uh, all of their philosophy they drew on earlier philosophers. It started around 300 BC in Athens, and the founder of Stoicism actually studied at Plato's Academy. Um, but there were several basic uh, teachings of, of, about uh, Stoic philosophy, and one of them was that if you wanted to live a happy life, this goes back to the very beginning, is that you want to live in agreement with nature, uh, which had a lot of different interpretations, but the Stoics saw uh, human beings as being rational creatures, and they saw the universe as being rational as well. So living in agreement with nature meant living a rational life and also developing your capacity to, to be rational. And uh, the type of philosophy that Stoicism is, is... Uh, it's it's so called uh, virtue ethics because the whole purpose of it is to uh, virtue sounds uh, very Victorian and quaint, but what virtue means is it just means that something is excellent, and uh, the whole point of like Roman Stoicism was to d- develop the excellence of your character, and the Stoics felt that that was actually the primary good in life rather than, for example buying a lot of things. Um, Seneca had these really, uh, he was actually one of the most wealthy people in the world, but uh, it seems like he got quite tired of wealth and uh, the wealthy people around him. So he had all of these satirical things to say about uh, consumerism and materialism. He was actually the first philosopher of, or the first he was actually like a proto-psychologist, and he, he was the first person to look at the psychology of uh, consumerism. So the main the main goal of uh, Stoicism, 
uh, in Roman times was to live a life that was truly worth living and to, to develop your inner character because they believed that virtue was the only true good and that um, the things in the external world, obviously we need them, but we're not going to use them in good ways if we don't have a good inner character. So it's like money, for example, is just something that they would see as, well, they would see it as being uh, some an advantage that you would want to have, but it's not intrinsically good in itself because people can use money to do very bad things or you can use it for good things. So the primary emphasis in Stoicism was really on developing the excellence of one's inner character. Yeah, you've mentioned money and you mentioned consumerism, but there's nothing in this way of thinking about the world that, as you say, excludes those things. It's not some kind of monastic ideal or, you know, uh, turning inwards at the expense of the outer world or, the, you know, material things are necessarily bad. It's really about balance, isn't it, at the end of the day? Right, right. And uh, the Stoics, uh, like uh, Plato before them, believed in four primary virtues, which, uh, you know, we call the cardinal virtues. So they developed, uh, they uh, were interested in developing uh, wisdom, courage, self-control, and justice. And uh, those were the four primary virtues. And basically, one of uh, the ideas of Stoicism is that you want to develop a good character in life, but when you do develop a good character, then you also develop a sense of uh, inner tranquility or equanimity so that you're able to live a good, meaningful life under any conditions, and things in the uh, world are much less likely to upset you. One thing that's clear from, from reading about Seneca, who, by the way, I'd heard of but not read, prior to um, receiving your book is that, well, this might be stating the obvious, but, uh, you know, human nature really hasn't changed in in that time or since his time or indeed since the time of the Greek philosophers you mentioned. And why would it really, you know, that that, that time span is, is barely a blink of an eye in terms of the history of, you know, modern humans on, on the earth. And uh, But it's, I think people, because we think so short term, Particularly since, uh, you know, in the last few hundred years with a materialistic um, worldview, we think in such short time spans that people feel uh, very disconnected or that it's very difficult to relate to, you know, their, con their contemporaries, you know, even from 2000 years ago, it feels almost like the creatures from another planet, but they're, they're really not. Right. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, changes, of course, in terms of the evolution of technology, but in terms of uh, human psychology and human nature, uh, this is this is one of uh, the things that anyone will feel if they start reading like Seneca or his letters. Um, he wrote 124 letters to a friend of his, but he also wrote all these essays. He was very people-focused. So uh, unlike an academic today who might, you know, give lectures to people, Seneca addressed all of his philosophical writings to people who were friends of his or family members. But if you do start reading uh, Seneca's writings, you'll see immediately that he's like a contemporary person because uh, he's concerned with the same issues that everyone today is, you know, how to live a happy life, 
how to deal with extremely negative emotions, um, you know, how to deal with emotions like anger, greed, envy, things like that. And then how he, this, all of the Stoics were very pro-social, so they wanted to make the world a better place. So that's something that people obviously still want to do. So really, in terms of um, our inner psychological lives, we're, we're basically the same as you know the people living back then. It, ju- it just jumps off the page at you. Uh, there's one funny example of that towards the beginning of the book where I mentioned earlier that Seneca was the first uh, psychologist of consumerism, but he even describes the phenomenon of keeping up with the Joneses. And he says that um, if only a few people did something, we could easily ignore it. But when uh, the majority starts to act in a certain way, we'll buy the same things that they do just because they've bought them. And we mistakenly believe that something is more honorable just because more people do it. Yeah, and you see that at play very much. You know, anybody listening to this can relate to that, can't they? Whether they've observed it, engaged in it, or or both. And that right, of course, yeah. And that takes me back to what I was saying about uh, you know talking about materialism, consumerism, materialism in both senses of the word as as a worldview, um, but also as a you know as a way of conducting yourself, as a way of behaving, a way of living. That's often pitched against. Um, the idea of meaning and purpose. So for a lot of people don't believe there is any meaning or purpose in life um, or the world or existence. And so they, they, I guess they find a substitute for that of sorts in consumerism and having things and being things. And, um, but those, as mentioned, those things are, are not mutually exclusive, you know, to, to find, to, to explore the possibility of meaning and purpose in life. You don't have to go and sit in a mountaintop or live in a cave. Um, right, but at the same right. time, if you just dive into materialist, consumerist culture and advertising of what's sold to us and, and how we're told we should live, you're unlikely to find um, you know, a meaning in your life or, or a sense of purpose. I think the way Seneca would explain it is that uh, there's nothing uh, wrong in uh, material things or making use of the gifts of fortune. Uh, and by fortune... What he meant is something that comes to us from nature or from chance. Um, the Stoics had this really fundamental view uh, that some things are up to us or within our control and other things are not up to us. And if you really analyze what's up to us, according to the Stoics, it comes down to a very, very small number of things, basically like the judgments that we're able to make about things and our own decision-making process and our will. And modern Stoics call that the dichotomy of control because if you realize that something is not really up to you and it seems to go wrong in some way, you don't have to feel upset about it. Uh, The thing that you need to pay attention to is what is up to you because that allows you to live a meaningful life and the way that Seneca described it, he described it a little differently. He used the terms uh, 
virtue versus fortune. And basically, virtue is anything to do with your inner life or character, so that's up to you. And fortune is anything that has to do with uh, the external world, uh, chance occurrences, and basically anything that that isn't within your your inner sphere and that includes our possessions money things like that and what seneca said is that you, you should you should deeply appreciate all the gifts of fortune that you have so <clears throat> if you have wealth a nice house a nice family you know those are advantages that you should um desire but you have to keep in mind that they're just gifts of fortune or gifts of the universe and that all these gifts are really on loan to us from the universe so you can enjoy them while you have them but you have to realize that every gift that's given to us will someday be taken back by the universe including our own lives so seneca was born into a wealthy family and as you say he was part of the political power structure in rome um, an advisor to emperor, no less, and in his day, one of the wealthiest men in the world. And in what way does he address? Well, now, of course, we're t again, we're talking about him in particular, but that's just you know, a metaphor for this way of thinking in general. But does he say anything about this approach to life for uh, people who have next to nothing, people for whom material existence is a struggle? There's many examples in history and in myth of, people um taking this approach to life when they you know as i say materially they have nothing they may be living in very adverse circumstances and right. every moment's a struggle so some people might think well it's easy for someone you know it's in their the high castle sort of with uh you know material concerns are not a worry never have been likely never will be um to to speak about these things in this way right well actually uh uh, historically, the most famous Stoic philosopher after Seneca, uh, when Seneca died, he was just a teenager. He was living in Rome. He may have been like around 15 years old, was Epictetus. And Epictetus was a slave. Uh, his name, uh, Epictetus in Greek means owned. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure that uh, the person that owned him at the time took good care of him, probably. Eventually, he uh, sent him to study philosophy, and then he became a free person. Uh, this is something we should talk about a little later, maybe towards the end of the discussion about uh, freedom in Stoicism, because that was a very important uh, concept in your podcast. It's called Legalized free Freedom. Yeah, it is. It's just, uh, I do have that down as a note um at, at the end actually so we can we can come back to that yeah um but uh what, what seneca realized is that the gifts of fortune are very ephemeral and uh you might be wealthy like him one day and you might lose all of your wealth the next day in fact that happened to him um uh, when he was 45 years old uh, basically he lived under a whole string of uh you know, bad emperors like Caligula who wanted to kill him. And then he was exiled to the island of Corsica by Claudius for, for eight years and uh, on trumped up charges. There was nothing to it. But when uh, you were exiled from Rome in ancient times, you lost immediately half of your wealth. 
he was married, so he lost his wife. And this happened two weeks after uh, his only child died when the child was a baby. So this was quite common back then. Marcus Aurelius, who was a Stoic philosopher as well, he was the emperor of the Roman Empire later. He had uh, 13 children and only five lived to adulthood. So Seneca was, uh, you know, very aware that these gifts of fortune were very ephemeral. And the Stoics, to go back to your question, uh, it is possible, according to the Stoics, to live a uh, worthwhile life, even if you do lack, for example, like money or a lot of possessions and things like that. And that's why they said uh, that virtue was the only true good, because things are only good if they possess virtue or they're, they're influenced by it. For example, Seneca said, if you uh, have a lot of wealth, uh, the wealth doesn't make you virtuous, but you can use it to exercise your virtue if you use your wealth in a wise way. And uh, when they said that virtue was the only true good, they were trying to make a point about how egalitarian Stoic philosophy was because uh, before the Stoics, Aristotle said that in order to lead a good life, you need external goods. So you need a certain amount of money. Uh, and he even said, you know, maybe you need good lucks as well, you know, to have a really good life, which is uh, quite silly because uh, Socrates uh, was said to have been the most virtuous philosopher ever. And he looked pretty ugly and had a pug nose and was compared to resembling a satyr. But um, I think the Stoics were right about that because imagine that you had developed a good character over your life, you were virtuous, you had led a meaningful life, but then you suddenly get old and uh, you've lost all of your wealth. Uh, your family members have died. You're left all alone in a room somewhere. You have nothing. You have no external goods at all. But does that mean that suddenly uh, you went from having an excellent life or inner character to uh, leading a bad life? Well, the Stoics would say no because the... Uh, you know, excellence of your character remains, you know, untouched by your external circumstances. That's why they said that even um, someone who was a slave uh, could unfortunately, you know, be enslaved physically, but they could still be free internally. Yeah, and you can you can flip that around to your external circumstances. Don't, don't change your inner character well great wealth or extreme wealth I mean, you can see that well throughout the ages but certainly today there's absolutely nothing inherently in the the billions and billions that some of the richest people on earth now have increasingly so as well as, as money continues to funnel upwards into fewer, um, yes. fewer and fewer hands there's nothing nothing inherently virtuous in any of the um the, the world's billionaires Right. Well, to take that metaphor of uh, slavery, you can flip that around, too, because on the one hand, the Stoics said that uh, a slave could be free internally, whereas they use slavery as a metaphor 
for what we might call addiction today. So uh, people are addicted to wealth or they're addicted to pleasures or something like that. And that would be a state of psychological slavery for the Stoics. Now, there's a story that I like to relate. Well, I don't like, it's very horrendous. It goes back many, many years, but it was it was a newspaper story that I read. And um, the exact details are, are hazy, but it doesn't matter. It's uh, It detailed a uh, here in the UK and England a wealthy businessman who had lost everything. I don't know whether it was, you know, a business went wrong, but in any event, um, lost everything. And he had a large house in the country. And there's little details I remember, like he had you know, him and his wife and children, that they had stables there with horses because either his wife and or his, his daughters or whatever liked horses. You know, I mean, if you're keeping horses, you've got to be fairly well off. And right. he said, you know, had this, that and the other thing. And it just detailed his wealth. Lost everything, and what he did was, and this is why it was such a shocking story, was he uh, he also had guns, which is unusual uh, here in mm-hmm. the UK, and he, I don't know how his family felt about the loss of their wealth, but he shot all of them dead and then shot himself. Right. Because they'd, they'd lost everything, and I just remember thinking, what a, what a tragic waste. They said, you have everything, the most valuable things you have are that you have your wife and children. And it was just such a shocking, extreme example of, exactly, of where, yes. of the place that where people can go to if they, if they, if, if their material wealth and their uh, consumerist way of life is what they base their identity on or where they, they derive some kind of meaning and purpose. If that all goes away, you know, what are they left with if they haven't cultivated anything else within themselves? Right. Well, uh, you know, when the great stock market crash happened in the 1920s, there were lots of people jumping out of windows because they had lost, you know, what they thought was everything of value, their wealth. But the story that you just told is even more extreme because uh, the fellow believed that uh, I'm going to take my family members with me because they they couldn't possibly be happy without wealth either. And... um what the Stoics believed, and this is something that makes it very interesting, is that basically almost all human suffering and extreme negative emotions are based on cognitive errors. They're based on errors of belief. And so if you can, if you're experiencing a, you know, extreme emotional state or some kind of suffering, if you analyze your underlying beliefs, you can actually remove the negative emotion. And I think that story that you uh, recounted is a very good example of that because obviously the fact that this person lost all of his wealth was not the end of his life. That was just a distorted belief. And uh, one of the most famous sayings of Stoicism is that... um, it's not things or events that upset us. It's our opinions about things. And uh, that's actually called the cognitive theory of emotion. And one of the most um, effective forms of psychotherapy is called cognitive behavioral therapy. And it was actually that entire school of philosophy was based on that fundamental stoic belief. The people who founded uh, cognitive behavioral therapy were aware of Stoic philosophy and 
they said this actually makes sense and we can use this to, to create a form of psychotherapy. I remember something that my grandfather used to say, um, if I guess if he thought I was engage, engaging in wrong-headed thinking, usually if I was upset about something or I thought something had gone wrong, um, but it usually wasn't, it wasn't completely reality based. So it'd be like, as you say, um, my interpretation of events, he would say, um, in reaction to what I'd said, he said, you only think that. Exactly. And, right. and, and I used to sort of, it took me a while to wrap my head around that when I was young. You only think that. Was, what do you mean I only think that? Then I realized, well, yeah, because that's what I'm thinking. So, but that doesn't make it so. Right. Seneca said there are more things that upset us in our imaginations than actually upset us in the real world. So uh, we often imagine these things that are going to happen that never happen, and that creates a lot of suffering. Uh, most of anxiety actually is based on worrying about the future, which hasn't even arrived yet. And so uh, the Stoics develop these different uh, psychological and therapeutic practices to deal with these uh, kinds of emotions. To sort of like deconstruct them and to uh, keep extremely uh, negative emotions from even coming into being. So there's this great misunderstanding about stoicism because uh, people think that, you know, uh, because the, the word stoic has changed over the centuries and people think that it has to do with like suppressing your emotions or keeping a stiff upper lip. And uh, it had nothing to do with that at all because the Stoics understood that, um, you know, suppressing emotions is, uh, you know, absolutely unhealthy. They would have never recommended it. But uh, and they, they accepted all sorts of like natural human feelings, but they felt that extreme violent negative emotions were harmful and they were based on uh, cognitive errors and that rather than suppressing them uh, if you could actually understand them rationally you could deconstruct the beliefs on which they were based and essentially neutralize the negative emotion yeah because i think a lot of people associate um, stoicism with basically putting up with any crap which is like, you know, I'm not doing anything about it. It's just kind of, well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a balance that has to be struck. You know, you, there, um, there's a, a hurricane and your house is destroyed. You can have a certain attitude to that and what you're going to do about it. But it's like, how do you engage with what's happened? How do you think about what has happened? And where do you go from that? R right. Rather than thinking about who do I blame for this, you know? And, you know, I have been wronged rather than this is just, you know, it's an act of God, an act of uh, force of nature. Uh, but it, the stoic approach to life does not mean as they just putting up with anything, allowing people to walk over you, allowing yourself to be treated badly, um, not speaking up, not um, taking action, you know, to, to uh, for redress. Right, right. Yeah, actually, uh, one of the most appealing uh, aspects of stoicism is that they felt that everyone faces different things. So you're, you're uh, facing a particular situation. It could be anything. And that's the starting point. And then how do you respond to that? For example, the example you gave of a hurricane, you know, destroying your house. Um, first of all, a stoic would have uh, some kind of emotional reaction to it. They would try to keep it from 
turning into something that was devastating or that would like topple their ability to think or their, you know, entire personality. But uh, one of the very uh, appealing things about Stoicism is that they had this belief that we could face any negative situation and always find some good in it by in terms of how we respond to it. Because if we respond to a situation in a virtuous way, that's a way of bringing, you know, good into the world under any circumstances. So let's say, let's say you're walking down the road one night and you smell some smoke or something and you see like a, a light ahead. And then as you get closer, you, you see that, you know, there's a car accident and someone's been seriously injured. Well, um, that's, most people would consider that to be, you know, some kind of tragedy or a really bad situation. It's certainly not a good one. <laughs> but the way a Stoic would respond to it is they would try to save the person's life. And so uh, if you were able to help the person who was injured in the car accident or save their life or get help, then that would have been a way to display virtue. And you would have taken, you know, a very negative situation and you would have created some good out of it. No, no matter how bad a situation might be, based on the way that you respond to it, you can bring some goodness into the world. I think that's really inspiring. I love that. Well, this is sort of an extension extension of what we talked about earlier. You know, but what we can and cannot control. Uh, you know, which uh, you present right. you present in the book, sort of eight axioms of stoicism, that being one of them, and what you just mentioned. Um, highlights another, which is the idea of opportunity and, and adversity, which again, for a lot of people, it's like, let's just focus on the adversity exclusively because that's what, you know, that's what's, that's what's hitting us emotionally and psychologically. Exactly right. And, uh, but, but that's, it is very important. And it, it seems sometimes like, and I notice this attitude quite a lot. Somebody's going through a difficult time. You say, focus on what, what you can control, not what you, you can't, you know, what, what you can do, not what you can't do. And there's sort of a, a, a strange psychological resistance to that, psychological and emotional resistance to that with people. Like, that's not what I want to hear, which is unusual. And if someone, uh -huh. if someone's experiencing adversity, say, well, what can come out of this? And it's almost like, I don't want to think like that. You know, it's almost like I want to wallow in the adversity and what I cannot control. Uh -huh. And that's, yes. that's an interesting human psychological trait as well. Right. <clears throat> I would not recommend that actually. <laughs> Because obviously, uh, let's say that you've experienced some adversity. Uh, I mean, wallowing in it isn't going to help you, you know, overcome it or make the situation better. So you just have to do what you can. You know, that's that's within your control to address it in some way. I was having a conversation recently, and, we're, and it just got onto the topic of... Um, trying to get out of life and I used the word happiness and um, fulfillment uh, not interchangeably by any means and the person I was talking with said well you know are we are we here are we meant to be happy and I said okay I accept that yes and I said okay well let's just just take happiness as as possibly a fleeting thing even if it might you know might hang around for extended periods but fulfillment doesn't necessarily you know overlap with that um, to any great extent, you know, you can find fulfillment in something that's not necessarily um, very, very happy, you know, depending, like, for example, 
you know, you, you might find that helping that person in that car wreck was something that, that really added something, you know, to your experience of life. I don't really know how to express it, but uh, one of the other axioms in, in the book is essentially that best possible life isn't just about contentment. And that's another interesting balance to strike because you don't want to be, if there's opportunity in adversity, um, does that mean you want a life exclusively of, of adversity? Possibly, po- probably not. Um, but what is a life of, of complete continuous contentment? What does that even look like? You know, that sort of stasis. I, I don't think, I think there's kind of a even evolutionary push here, some kind of natural teleology that um, even if you don't think there is any meaning and purpose ultimately in life, but I think there's something about these experiences of adversity or things being out of control that are there for us, you know, for, for us to grow and for, for self-improvement, for development of, of virtue. And, um, I think to seek constant contentment, it, whatever it looks like, whether it's, you know, mental, um, emotional, physical, um, we tend to be thwarted in that at, no matter what we do. And I think there's, there's something in that, you know, the fact that that happens. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.